Thank you very much. So, only two days after Abdelhamid Ibrahim Sabra passed away on December the 18th, 2013, the UN General Assembly 68th session proclaimed, proclaimed sorry, 2015 as the International Year of Light and Light-Based Technologies. Sabra was the first to translate the seven volumes of Alazan's optics into English, a monumental task that he undertook at the Warburg Institute, where he published the first volumes of uh, his edition and translation in 1989. But last year was not just a year of light. It also marked the thousandth anniversary of Alazan's treaties, which the organizing committee for the uh, International Year of Light celebrated by participating in a year-long initiative called 1001 Inventions and the World of Ibn al-Haytham, involving international events of all kinds, and even the release of a short feature film starring Omar Sharif. Sabra played a major part uh, in making al-Haytham's original work uh, known to non-Arabists, while most would have, before him, had to refer to uh, the uh, Latin appropriation of the text known under the title De Aspectibus from 1200 onwards and attributed to Alassane, spelt with a C until the edition of 1572. Arabic studies were central from the very first days of uh, the Warburg Library in Hamburg, and then later on when the collections were brought to London by Fritz Axel, who could read Arabic and carried on Warburg's studies of star Arabic, sorry, studies of Arabic star imagery and its part in medieval civilization. <clears throat> this interest culminated very recently in the opening at the Warburg on March the 16th, 2012, um, of the Center for the History of Arabic Studies in Europe, promoting a, quote, research into the transfer and survival of Arabic and Islamic culture in Europe. Sabra was the first Arabist to become a member of the Warburg Institute's permanent staff. He taught at the Institute from 1965 to 1972, but he'd been there for three years already, though, uh, because he had held the Institute's senior research fellowship from 1962 on. Um, in his preface, uh, in um, Sabra's preface to the translation of uh, the Kitab al-Manazar into English, he evokes his years at the Warburg and mentions one anecdote involving Francis Yates, which I will be discussing today. So I'll be quoting from um, Sabra now from his introduction. I was able to consult the Latin version of the optics for the first time in London in 1961-1962 during a leave of absence from the University of Alexandria, and it soon became clear to me that my project should be enlarged to include an edition and translation of the entire seven books. It was, however, only after I joined the University of London's Warburg Institute first as a senior research fellow and subsequently as a member of its teaching staff, sorry, that the idea of this larger enterprise developed to a commitment which has claimed my attention for long stretches of time ever since. I have the strong feeling that I might not have stayed with that decision had it not been for the real interest in the historical role of the optics, which I quickly discovered among members of the Institute's faculty. 
I have not forgotten the amused and kind smile on Otto Kuritz's face when I expressed surprise at his interest in the optics, nor shall I forget the day when Francis Yates walked into my room at the Institute with a copy of her 1936 study of Love's Labour's Lost, in which she had pointed out a connection between the book by her son, Ibn Sun or Alice N, and the theme of Shakespeare's play. In other words, Sabra here shows how most members of staff at the Institute, including Yeats, already knew the importance of the Latin Alizen. Although we know that Yeats came to regard her second book, A Study of Love's Labour's Lost, as uh, her weakest, she still held to this one reference to Alizen some 30 years after she wrote the book, when she entered the room of Sibra, who was then working on the translation um, of uh, the Kitab al-Manazir. So Yates' initial uh, assumption is founded upon an autobiographical essay by the Earl of Northumberland, dated circa 1604, which was published for the first time as an appendix to uh, her own study. In a chapter entitled The Earl of Northumberland and Stella's Sister, she quotes from this essay to defend the idea that Alizane's optical theory lies behind many of Shakespeare's comedies' ubiquitous references to lights, light, sorry, eyes, and vision. Yeats read Shakespeare's play as a dramatization of the Earl of Northumberland's attempt at quieting his sensual appetites and living in philosophy through the creation of a little academe of his own devoted to the study of things hidden barred from common sense. Yet strangely enough, Yeats's intuition that Alison's views were those debated by the four men in the opening pages of the play is never so much as mentioned in recent editions of the comedy, even if only to be challenged. The Alison hypothesis seems to have been abandoned without having ever been considered thoroughly. In fact, most of the post-1936 editions of the play I have consulted argue quite the opposite, i.e. that the men in the play refer to mostly extremist theories of light and vision, which Alison had shown were partly irrelevant to his optics. For instance, commenting upon Barone's inaugural discussion of uh, the famous optical conundrum, light-seeking light, dislight of light beguile, William C. Carroll, in the new Cambridge Shakespeare edition, writes, eyes were believed to create the light by which they see. This is more or less the same as uh, what Woodhuizen says in his uh, footnote for the Arden Shakespeare edition, where he writes, I quote, eyes were thought to create and project the light by which they saw. And again, this is uh, true of uh, Hibbard's edition for the Oxford Shakespeare, where he says, it was believed in Shakespeare's day that eyes emitted eye beams by, me by means of which they saw. So Carol, Woodhuizen, and Hibbard have all opted for the same interpretation and for a passive form. Eyes were believed to create. Eyes were thought. It was believed. Therefore, leaving the origin or source of those beliefs and thoughts unspoken. Now, what Yeats argued in her study of Love's Labour's Lost was thus very different in at least two meaningful ways. First, she pointed to a very precise and unique source for the play's optics, Alazen. As a result, her interpretation traced the origins of the many eye-related uh, references in the play to a specific scientific theory and topical learned debates rather than attributing them to general unspecified belief. The second major difference between her reading and the footnotes I've just read is that in Alazen's optics, eyes do not create, emit, or project anything. They do precisely the opposite. They receive light in rays through uh, a painful encounter. 
I will therefore be uh, looking at Yeats's uh, hypothesis again to try and understand why it's, it's no longer mentioned in uh, present-day editions and ask whether this possibility, the Alison hypothesis, is worth inquiring into still, bearing in mind the many rediscoveries and redevelopments that followed Sabra's translation um, and the uh, Warburg-inspired interest in the transfer and survival of Arabic and Islamic culture in Europe. So in the text by Percy that is added at the end of the study of lost labours lost, the Earl of Northumberland explains how one day, um, as he was making himself giddy by thinking about some unhappy love affair, he went rummaging in his personal library in search of an alleviating read, such as, I quote, the Arcadia or books of the like subject, whereby I might learn to utter my lethargious passions with their sweet flimflams pleasing orders but destiny prepared to cross his desires, had him stumble across an altogether different work by, I quote, an old Arabian called Alazen, with which some anger angrily removed it, flying open, perhaps by reason of a stationary thread uncut, yet superstitious in my religion that it was the spirit that directed me by hidden and unconceivable means what was good for my purpose. So rather than indulging in the idle work of a poet, the Earl considers the incident as truly portentous and is then led, much against his own will at first, to ruminate on how science may prove uh, a surer way out of the circular maze of fences. This specific episode prompts Francis Yates to describe the theme of Northumberland's essay on the pursuit of learning as the theme of Shakespeare's play, Reversed. Peirce's decision to turn to philosophy is indeed the result of disappointment in love, while Shakespeare's brave conquerors of knowledge are defeated by the princes of France's embassy, announced only minutes after the four courtiers have pledged not to see ladies study fast, not sleep. Yeats then carries the comparison further by implying that Barone's early discourse on light in the play may be a near explicit reference to Northumberland's study of Alazan's optics. Her final point is that the influence of Thomas Harriet, a close student of Alison's uh, work and optics in general, is, I quote from Yeats, unmistakable in a Northumberland document. So given that Yeats sees Love's Labour's Lost as not just alluding to Percy's essay, but as a true mirror of the Earl's words, she, uh, she writes, I quote, the play answers the document, the document answers the play, point for point. The conclusion she draws from these many reflections reads as a near definitive statement. There can be little doubt, I think, that one of the books which the king and his court are studying at the commencement of the play is the Optikai Thesaurus of Hassan Ibn Hassan or Alazen. Now, strangely enough, however central Yeats's reading of the play was, she never really discussed the plausibility of her own hypothesis by looking at internal evidence, i.e. at the specific way the idea of light appears in the play to confront it with Alazen's own theory. The way she presents Alazen's works, uh, and, and his uh, optical work in particular, uh, further confirms the fact that her deduction, which I would like to show was indeed a rather stimulated suggest stimulating suggestion, is based upon very little inquiry into Alizan's optics per se, making her claim an even bolder one at the time. When introducing Alizan to her reader, Yeats writes, Hassan Ibn Hassan, or Alizan, was a celebrated Arabic mathematician of the 11th century who made important advances in the study of optics. The book which the lovesick Earl opened so carelessly was probably the Latin translation of his chief work, 
Neopticae Thesaurus, published at Basel in 1572. This book has an engraved frontispiece illustrating the subject. These lines are, in fact, the only passage uh, in Yeats's study about Alazen proper. She never touches upon the very nature of the important advances in the study of optics that he's here said to have made. This surprisingly short presentation also features two rather inaccurate statements about Alazen. First and foremost, the title Francis Yates' mansion, Optica Thesaurus, is in fact the title that was given by Risner to a compendium that included an incomplete Latin translation of um, Alazen's treatise, known in the West as the uh, Dies Pectibus, along with Witello's Perspectiva. The first translation of Alazen into Latin has been argued to be the work of probably two individual um, at least one of them probably being uh, Gerard of Cremona. Um, now, the manuscript's translation errors and the gaps reverberate in the commentaries of the Dies Pectibus from um, the year uh, 1200 onwards. These commentaries and, and, and uh, translations, and commentaries rather by Bacon, Peckham, Witello, etc. And the 1572 edition that Yeats referred to thus offers a version of Alazen's theory that differs markedly from the original even though it was to become Europe's most common source of uh, knowledge about optics. As its title indicates, Witello's famous text, which was appended to Alazen's optics in the Thesaurus, belongs to what has retrospectively been termed the perspectivist tradition, which gained popularity in the second half of the 13th century through the work of some key figures in the history of optics, all taking their original inspiration from Alazen. The perspectivist tradition owes its existence to, um, and, and, uh, to the common inspiration of uh, Alazen theory to the point that historians of science usually consider their treatises as derivative works to Alazen's uh, optics. It must therefore have seemed to be no coincidence to early modern specialists that Witello's Perspectiva and Alazen's Dies Pectibus were seen printed in one common thesaurus. This also shows how much Alazen's theory had been appropriated by the West in 1572 rather than just transmitted to borrow a distinction made uh, by uh, Abdelhamid Sibra himself. So Alazen's work, although incompletely translated, was frequently, if not systematically, mentioned when dealing with optics in early modern Europe, if only in its Latinized form, different again from the original. In fact, after his death, Ibn al-Haythin's writing were probably more influential in Latin than in Arabic. The other slight inaccuracy appearing in Yeats's introduction of Alazen's optics stems from the link she draws between the alleged contents of the treatise and the frontispiece of the Thesaurus. Yeats says that the illustrated frontispiece of the compendium was intended to echo Alazen's subject. In fact, the engraving incorporates elements from both texts, with Hallows and Alazen's, some of which are actually absent from uh, Alazen's text and dealt with by Witello only, such as the case of the uh, burning mirror, for example. Um, the, um, um, although Francis Yates' summary is therefore only partially correct, the influence of Alazen's work and as a result its potential role in shaping Renaissance ideas and light, such as the one voiced in Love's Labour's Lost, remains a plausible assumption. But examining such a possibility means probing into the exact nature of the optical advances Alazen made. Alazen relied on various sources, which he alternatively, alternatively built upon or contradicted when elaborating his own theory. 
His main sources, although not all cited by names, have been positively identified as Euclid, Ptolemy, Aristotle, and Galen. Other than refers to them as mathematicians, i.e. those who posit rays, which applies to Euclid and Ptolemy, but also as natural philosophers like Aristotle and anatomists such as Galen. Alazan's optics can thus be described alternately and simultaneously as mathematical, physical, and physiological. What is most striking in this list is the encounter or confrontation of extremissionists who attributed vision to rays emanating from the observer's eyes, and intromissionists, who, following Aristotle, assigned a cause of vision to intromitted rays, which pass from visible objects to observer's eyes, where they stimulate the visual power. Alazan's synthesis combined two leading contradictory optical options of the time, thus granting him a long-lasting scientific posterity. This unification of eclectic scientific traditions may be one of the reasons why Alazan's theory did indeed dominate Western optics between the 13th and the 17th century. Alazan could be made to fit into the evolution of Western optics from the Middle Ages to the early modern period, mostly thanks to the perspectivists' ability to accommodate his theory and weave it into their own still largely extremissionist model. What Alazan's approach showed was in fact probably that intromission did not stand in contradiction with extromission, despite their disagreement over the direction and type of radiation. The basic analytic device of extromissionist optics, the visual cone, was only transmuted into a cone of light. This cone was either a visual cone starting from the eye or a light cone emitted from the object, but in both cases the cone was made of beams radiating from or to the eye. Interestingly enough, Love's Labour's Lost is the only play by Shakespeare where the word eye-beam crops up as such. It's also true, as Yeats points out, that eyes and light are absolutely central in the play. This may be partly, but only partly, related to the fact that the play features many embedded sonnets and also parodies the clichés of the Petrarchan material. That sonnets and vision or optics are related is nothing new to uh, historians and liter literature specialists. In 1986, for example, even before uh, Sebrachian's later Alazen, Joel Feynman wrote, I quote, the typical Renaissance sonnet embraces an idealized visuality which is reflexively reflective on the model of the sun whose brightness is both agent and patient of both seer and scene, or of an Eidolon whose intromissive, extromissive visibility joins beholder to beheld, joining kind with kind in a homogeneous conception of desire. Fine Mind's typology usefully highlights the dual and possibly contradictory nature of visibility in the early modern period, and in Shakespeare's sonnets as well. Although mathematically equivalent, the two options, intromission and extromission, entail rather fundamental physical oppositions, a point that the very conception of light in both theories exemplifies quite well. Before Alzen's theory became known, light could work as a catalyst between the seeing eye and the visible, as the two shared a common fire, according to the extremissionist theory, and perception rested upon a visual cone-like ray acting as a sensitive projection from the eye to the world, much resembling a near-tactile beam, engendering or bringing forth, quite literally, images. Indeed, as is made clear in uh, Shakespeare's poetry, among others, through the recurring use of the homophonic puns on sun and sun, vision works as an analogy of procreation, of an encountering of same with same, through which a shared light begets vision. With the visual beam emitted from the eye, 
the eye encounters the world outside the eye and creates vision. The first sensorial encounter accordingly takes place outside the limits of one's body, if continuously. The touch-like quality of extramission may also account for the much eroticized value of the eye-beam metaphor so central to Petrarch in Love Poetry, hence may be resulting in um, the uh, sun image of such sensory and sensual meeting. The analogy appears explicitly in Love's Labours Lost, only to be humorously commented upon in a brief yet revealing exchange between Moth and Boyette, while the former is addressing the Queen uh, of France and her lady. I quote Moth. Once to behold with your sunbeamed eyes, and the ladies fail to react, with your sunbeamed eyes, Boyette interrupts him and says, they will not answer to that epithet. You will best call it daughter-beamed eyes. Boyette's punning, if intended as a joke, does in fact undermine the very extremistionist process in obliterating the fundamental analogy upon which it is grounded. Extremition can only work through comparison and analogy with the loud outside of father to his sons engendered by similarly lit eyes. The lineage or continuity was such that seeing light was obviously the blind spot in the theory, given that it would imply the capacity to see one's eye seeing in an impossibly reflective act. This may have been what um, uh, fueled Baron's complex first lines in the play, light-seeking light, this light of light beguile, which would therefore confirm the editor's choice of mentioning its remissionist beliefs only when adding a note to this rather obscure passage. Yet Boyette's punning later in the play, which I just mentioned, along with the rather evident irony directed against the would-be Petrarchs in the comedy, somehow seemed to deflate the artificial specularity of both rhetoric and vision, the heavenly rhetoric of the eye. Is there any alternative, any hint of intromission in the play that would not reflect homogeneity? In the intromission theory, the visible world affects the eye along lines of propagation coming from outside the eye before they hit, quite literally and painfully, the crystalline. As a result, intromission introduces discontinuity between the eye and the world, between the different moments of the perceptual process, between light and the body, thus making it possible, for example, for Alizan to think of light as distinct from colour. The anatomists would also have supported such discontinuity. To borrow Lobanov-Ritovsky's enlightening formulation, I quote, during the 16th century, the practice of ocular anatomy made the eye visible to itself, intensifying the traditional conflict between the eye's material nature and its status as metaphor. The vile jelly of eyes could then be increasingly read about and seen, hence competing with the metaphorical lineage of the eye as agent of light, as father to son. Intermission may therefore be metaphorically um, interpreted as lineage gone awry or obscure. And symptomatically enough, perhaps, in Love's Labour's Lost, the identity of the father of the only child in the play, Jaquinetta's baby, remains a debated and unresolved issue, a blind spot, in other words. Alazan was also familiar with Galen and anatomy, and it's no wonder that his theory could incorporate this tradition. No longer simply understood as the sovereign son, begetter of all sons, the eye was becoming this independent and material cell, only fantastical at times, receiving rays of light along mathematical lines. With light becoming a physical and mathematical object, the eye was conversely becoming more vulnerable and fleshy. Is this the reason why Navarre's very first rules in the opening scene of the play state that the men should not see ladies or eat too much? Could it be that eating and seeing are paralleled because they are two forms of intromission? 
This, in turn, may echo the female character's decision to turn their backs rather than their eyes to their suitors and to advise them to fast rather than to rejoice in the warm and fruitful season of love and procreation. This may finally stand as one possible reason for Rosaline's many similarities with the Dark Lady of the Sonnets, and therefore is she born to make black fair her favourite turns the fashion of the days. Contrary to the luminous exchanges and sunbasks reproductive visions of other sonnets, the poems to the Dark Lady and some of the visual metaphors in Love's Labours Lost are grounded upon a painful and contentious visual process whereby the continuity and fluidity of eye beams are turned into a discontinuous trajectory of light between seer and seen. So to conclude, uh, I'll go back to the footnotes to the play I mentioned in my um, introduction, which um, all agreed on the fact that eyes were believed to emit light full stop. With such a phrasing, the whole lively optical debate of the early modern period disappears from you, from view, sorry, as this formulation points to extramission only. Yet this, this extramission, um, I mean, had ceased, to be, had ceased to be the only common optical belief for at least three centuries, over the course of which the supposedly dominant theory had appropriated Alizan's syncretic demonstration, if only in its Latinized form, substantially different, again, from the original Arabic text. Although eyes were indeed believed to create the light by which they see, they were also thought to receive light through intromission, Eye beams could only give birth to visual perception when met by rays of physical light emitted from the world outside, exceeding the limits of the observer's bodily envelope. Such intromissive extramissive theory of vision had resulted from the challenging history of the accommodation of Alizan theory into what became known as Europe as his optics after many a perspectivist adaptation and reinterpretation. This is the reason why Yeats's suggestions needs to be heard and considered seriously again, all the more so as the thorough study and rediscovery, so to speak, of Alazen in the West emerged a while after she published her study. This may account for the rather straightforwardness uh, dimension of her statement. There can be little doubt that one of the books which the King and his court are studying is the Optica Thoris by Alazen. Yeats's conclusions needs qualifying in view of some recent developments. First, the assumption that um, Hassan, Ibn Hassan, or Alazen are only linguistically different names associated to one and the same theory rests upon the idea that the Latinized version of Alazen is an exact translation of the medieval Arabic or text, which it is not. Centuries of perspectivist tradition had already incorporated the original text into an eclectic synthesis. Second, we have no way of knowing whether there's any actual specific topical reference in the play, in the comedy. But neither do we know whether Shakespeare did believe that eyes emitted the light by which they see, and this still appears in the footnotes. So Yeats' intuition and convictions are far from irrelevant, since Alazen, if only in his European version, was widely read and woven within Latin tradition, which allowed his views to become fully compatible with jarring notions, making his work a dominant source of Western optics, and as such, a source as plausible, or I'd be tempted to say in Warburgian fashion as neighbourly as any when looking into Shakespeare's eyes. Thank you. Um, thank you for your lucid and uh, nuanced uh, discussion of Yeats's position in the uh, debate about vision in uh, Shakespeare, one, one that, that uh, has been uh, uh, very 
powerfully fruitful. And thank you also for your reference to Joel Feynman's work, uh, Shakespeare's Perjured Eye, which uh, won the MLA Prize in uh, 1986, and uh, unfortunately, shortly before this, he's very cruel uh, death far too early. Um, also uh, positioned in this debate, which is, is continuing, is the work of Maria del Sapio at uh, Roma Tre. And now there, there is a book that has just come out in uh, Italy, I, I think uh, it's uh, Siena and Pacini, uh, which uh, edited by Marina, Maria del Sapio, uh, Shakespeare e la nuova scienza nell'etamo early modern, and uh, in which she continues her work. But I, I also have an extensive essay on the issue of extramission and intromission uh, in Shakespeare's history plays. So it's all still happening. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, I, I read very recently an article by uh, Maria del Sapio, which uh, she, she was kind enough to, 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 to email me. Um, and it was precisely about the analogy between um, eating and seeing. And so I think that this you know, thread of this, this particular metaphorical and analogical, maybe, way of, of thinking about perception is, um, is, 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 well, being studied very carefully, you know, just these days, so it's still very current, I'd say, you know, it's still something that, as you say, is very, well, alive in Shakespeare studies. <laughs>